Today's reading comes from Acts chapter 19, verses 23 through 41. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If, then, Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. We do pray that your spirit would be here with us this morning, helping us understand how events that happened halfway around the world and almost 2,000 years ago have bearing on us as a church and us as your people. Father, we pray that your spirit would be stirring among us, helping us to love your word, giving us eyes to see its truth, and Father, obedient hearts to follow. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, This morning, I need you for just a minute, or a couple minutes, to put on your imagining caps. And uh, imagine Indiana, 1953. Okay, Indiana, 1953. Things are, well, a little bit more simple, maybe a little bit more idyllic, and basketball is the unrivaled sport in Indiana, right? IU men have just won their second national championship. Gene Hackman has led Hickory High School to a state title. (laughs) We're imagining At the top of every boy and girl's Christmas wish list, 
is a brand new basketball. Every high school gym, every junior high gym is packed for the weekly games. Assembly Hall is sold out every game. I know Assembly Hall wasn't built to the 70s. We're imagining. That summer, a new coach moves into town, into Bloomington. But he's not a basketball coach. He comes bringing a new sport. We'll call it baseball. No one is really worried or even pays much attention to this new coach because, after all, Indiana, it's a basketball state. And especially Bloomington, it's a basketball town. But this coach starts actively recruiting. He doesn't start with basketball players. He starts with football players because, well, frankly, no one cares about the football players in Indiana because it's a basketball state. And he targets the quarterback, thinking, you know what, that quarterback would make a good pitcher. Then he goes after the wide receiver and thinks he'd be a good center fielder. Eventually, the football coach gets mad about, well, this new baseball coach. The football coach gets mad about the baseball coach stealing his his good players. And so he begins speaking evil of baseball and says it's a boring, slow sport. Unfounded, vicious rumors. (laughs) So the baseball coach takes his recruiting and broadens it and starts getting track players and swimmers and divers and still no one really pays that much attention. Until one day, the star point guard for the local high school goes to his coach and quits and says... I finally found a real sport. I'm going to play baseball. He's followed by the center and then the forward. And eventually, this new baseball coach and his new baseball team starts attracting quite a crowd. And athletic directors start taking notice and giving love to the new coach and the new team. And they get a new field and people start coming to the games. And attendance at basketball games starts to decline. And and no one's asking for new basketballs anymore. They want baseball mitts and bats. One night there's a, a big bonfire. It's meant to be a pep rally for the basketball team. But inexplicably, hundreds of basketball players walk up to the fire and drop their Chuck Taylor high tops in the fire and put on cleats instead. One local coach, we'll call him Bobby, has had enough. He decides he's going to be the knight in shining armor and save basketball in Indiana from the influences of this coach and baseball. He he calls a meeting. They meet at Coach's Pub downtown. Him, a lot of alumni from his basketball team, other local coaches, and he begins telling them what the baseball coach is doing and what he's saying about basketball. And they get angry. And they walk out of Coach's Pub and they start marching across campus and they're talking loudly and they begin to attract a crowd as they march towards Assembly Hall. And the crowd swells and fills Assembly Hall. Some people don't even know why they're there. And the whole time they're singing, this is I, you, you, you. Okay, 
incredibly trivial illustration, but maybe helps you understand some of the tensions lying behind this riot that happens in Ephesus. Uh, This semester, we've been exploring the book of Acts and how God's mission is, well, marching with, with the church through the world. It started with a small band of disciples who had witnessed the resurrected Christ. And it spreads through Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And it's going to the ends of the world. We've seen Paul in Athens. We've seen him in other Greek cities. And here now he's in Ephesus. It's not the first time he's been in Ephesus. He's been there briefly before, kind of as a layover on his way to other cities. But this time he goes and he's going to spend two and a half years in the city of Ephesus. That's kind of out of the ordinary for Paul. Normally he's in a city for a few months, maybe a year. He starts a church, leaves it with disciples, and then moves on. But in Ephesus he spends two and a half years because Ephesus was an incredibly large and important city in the Roman Empire. It was the fourth largest city in the whole empire, behind Rome, Antioch, and Alexandria. So when you think of Ephesus, think of like Chicago. Obviously on a smaller scale, the population was somewhere between 250,000 and half a million people. But when you think of Chicago, you know, New York, D.C., L.A., Chicago. Probably fourth most important city in the U.S. Debatable, obviously. But think of Chicago. Ephesus was a port city. Lots of people coming and going all the time. It was a commercial hub. It was a banking center. It was an incredibly wealthy, important city. Now, if I was going to ask you, again, thinking of Chicago, what the most important, most iconic building in Chicago is, some of you might say Wrigley. Some of you might say Soldier Field. Maybe Sears Tower, Hancock Building, I don't know, the Mercantile. All these things could be debated. In Ephesus, there would have been no debate. The most important building, the most important institution was the Artemisian, the Temple to Artemis. It was this grand building, four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. Huge. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a source of a lot of revenue for Ephesus. It was the source of a lot of civic pride. People all over knew that Ephesus was Artemis' city. It employed thousands, thousands of priests, thousands of attendants, thousands of cult prostitutes, It was, well, you can't overestimate the importance of the Artemisian to Ephesus. So Paul spends two, two and a half years in this city. If you go into a city that large and you want to start a church, where do you begin? Well, if you're Paul, you go to the synagogue. It makes sense. Christianity springs out of, grows out of Judaism, out of the Old Testament scriptures and all the promises. 
And Paul was a rabbi. He had his certificate. And here he uses his credentials to go in and preach the gospel in the synagogue. He spends three months doing that, reasoning with them daily. Actually, the text says he argued concerning the kingdom of God with them. Certainly, he said, with the advent of Jesus, the kingdom of God has come. Not in its full consummated form, but it's broken in. We can experience the kingdom now. Jesus is the Messiah, the ruler of the kingdom that we've been waiting for. And he spent three months arguing the kingdom of God with them. Eventually, it says the Jews became stubborn and spoke evil of the Christians, referred to as the way. And so Paul moves on and rents a large lecture hall owned by Tyrannus, the teacher. Tyrannus literally means tyrannical. How would you like to have a teacher named tyrannical? He rented it from the 5th hour to the 10th hour, 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day, and he lectured. That's right at the, the heat of the day, where most people were taking a siesta. It was said of Ephesus that more people were asleep at 1 in the afternoon than were asleep at 1 in the morning. But Paul was dedicated to his task, and he was there every day, dialoguing, reasoning, teaching, debating about the gospel. Paul must have been an accomplished debater because he reaches a class of Ephesian citizens that, well, he couldn't have otherwise. The text says that the whole of Asia heard the gospel. And even some officials called Asiarchs became Paul's friends. They respected him. They might not have agreed with him. They might not have embraced the way yet. But he won a hearing with them. The Asiarchs were the, the intellectual and social elite. It was from within that group of officials that the high priest would be chosen every year to serve in Caesar's temple where Caesar was worshipped. So Paul's teaching, he's preaching, he's debating, he's dialoguing, and his renown and the renown of the gospel is growing. The text tells us he did more than that, more than just teaching and reasoning. God, through Paul, did extraordinary miracles. And Paul cast out numerous demons, evil spirits. People began to to mimic Paul. There was these seven sons of Sceva, Try and say that five times real fast. Seven sons of Sceva, who were Jewish exorcists, who kind of went on a circuit, casting out demons all over Asia Minor. And they had heard about Paul and his power, and so they began began casting out demons in Jesus' name who Paul preaches. In one instance, the demon replied, Jesus I know. Paul I've heard about... But dude, who are you? (laughs) And the demon-possessed man pounces on them and, and beats them, and it says they ran away naked and wounded. That's a very odd detail, isn't it? I mean, if you get beat so bad that you run out without your clothes, you're obviously wounded. More than just physically. 
But because of all this, a great fear, it says, fell among the citizens of the city, and Jesus was extolled. Converts were being made, and those converts were being discipled. One group of these disciples realized, came to the conclusion that their practice of magic, of the dark arts, didn't jive with their newfound faith in Jesus Christ. And so in one day they brought all their scrolls. Scrolls were incredibly valuable in the ancient world, but especially magic scrolls. And they brought them and they burned them, and it says their worth was 50,000 days wages. Days wages. Just assume a day's wage is $100 today. It's probably lowballing it. That would be $50 million worth of magic scrolls burned. Okay, so that's some of the background. You can maybe now understand some of the, the tension brewing in the city. When Demetrius, who is a gold silversmith, I'm sorry, says enough is enough. Our trade is suffering because people aren't buying Artemis idols from us anymore. They're not setting up household shrines to Artemis. We're going to go out of business. Our pocketbooks are suffering. And he gets together with some of the the union, the trade guild of silversmiths. And he says, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying that gods made with human hands, they can't be real gods at all. And we're losing business and eventually Artemis in the temple, it's going to be no more. And they're furious. And they march to the theater, which holds 25,000 people. And a huge crowd gathers. Mob rule, mob mentality is kind of going on here because most of the people don't even know why they're there. They're, they're just there chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Uh, the Jews who were in the crowd put forward Alexander to speak on their behalf. Why? <laughs> well, the Jews didn't worship Artemis either. The Jews were... Well, they had a privileged status in the Roman Empire. They weren't forced to worship other gods. They weren't forced to worship Caesar. They peacefully, though, coexisted with these other religions. It is likely that Alexander was stepping forward to distance himself from Paul and the Christians in the way. But they even shout him down. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The town clerk steps in. And quiets the whole situation down. He says, A, let's be reasonable. Everybody knows that Indiana is a basketball state. Everybody knows that Ephesus is the home to the temple of Artemis. That's not in danger. Be reasonable. And be legal. If you have a complaint about these fellows, bring it to the pro-council. And then he disbands the mob. In some ways, it's kind of an anticlimactic ending to a, a story that's building and there's conflict. It disbands peacefully this time. It doesn't always, not in every city. But this story illustrates, I think, three, well, incredibly important truths about the gospel. First, from Acts chapter 19, we see that the gospel overturns 
the status quo. The gospel disrupts the peace of individual lives. It overturns the norm in people's individual lives. The gospel comes into a life and Christ comes into a life and dismantles altars, tear down, tears down idols. Those who embraced the gospel and followed Christ, well, they stopped buying Artemis idols. They stopped going to the temple and worshiping Caesar. They stopped participating in the festivals and the trade guild feasts that were immoral and involved the worship of other gods. Because the gospel had came in, had come into their life and tore down those idols. It changed their life because it called also for, for a costly repentance. Repentance isn't always easy. Turning away from sin and the attractions of the world and maybe even the way you earn your income isn't always easy. The gospel comes in and demands costly repentance and a total transformation of one's life. I love how the Christians were referred to early on. Uh, They weren't the new religion. Uh, They weren't the believers, at least not to the outside world. They were the way. Uh, Certainly they had a core set of beliefs. Jesus is the Lord. He's crucified. He's risen. Those beliefs, though, transformed everything. It became a way of life. So they were called the way. It transformed everything about the Christian. One early critic of Christianity said that, you know what? They're weird. Uh, They share everything except their wives. In the empire, it was quite normal to share and, and swap wives. But the Christians wouldn't partake in that kind of immorality. They shared everything, goods and food and homes, but, but not wives. Tertullian, who wrote an early apology for the Christians, said, look at, look at how we use our money. Yes, we're weird. But we don't use our money to promote drunken parties and orgies and worship of other gods. We use our money to care for the poor. The gospel had come into individual lives and transformed them. Transformed how they used their money. How they lived in their marriages. How they performed their duties. Lived out their vocations. It changed everything for the early believers. You know, if your life hasn't been changed by the gospel you haven't really encountered the gospel. It disrupts the status quo. It disturbs the peace. I wrote that. I typed that. And then I almost wanted to retract it. Because I thought, you know what? I grew up in a Christian home. I was baptized at the age of 10. I don't have one of those kind of before and after stories that's you know, drugs and violence and And then, total transformation. But I still believe the gospel has changed my life. I have to use my imagination a little bit. Maybe that's one of the reasons God gave us imagination. 
I have to think what my life would have been like apart from the gospel. And I can use some of the temptations I face now to project into the future or and get an image of what my life would have been like. I can look at some of the idols in my life that I have to keep suppressing now and project in what my life would have been like. For me, I know one of the temptations is the temptation to, well, rabid consumerism. I suppress that. I fight that temptation because of the gospel in my life. When I'm discouraged, when I'm down, when I'm frustrated, one of the first things I want to go do is buy something. Doesn't have to be something big. A movie, new music, socks, doesn't matter. I resist that temptation to seek comfort in consumerism because of the gospel. If the gospel wasn't in my life, it would be different. I know one of the idols I have to always keep repeatedly dethroning in my life is self. I am so incredibly selfish. The fact that I'm not constantly always selfish, well, that's because the gospel is in my life. The gospel has changed everything for me. I need an imagination to understand how. And maybe you're like that. But if the gospel hasn't changed anything, then you haven't encountered the real gospel. Because Jesus comes in when we embrace the good news and he tears down idols and he overturns the status quo. So how has the gospel changed you? Where does the gospel still need to do its work in your life? That's the first thing I see in this text. The gospel made a difference in people's lives. It overturned the status quo. They stopped buying Artemis idols. They burned their magic schools. They repented. They lived differently. They were the way. You also see that the gospel overturned the status quo in a whole society, in a whole city. It did it the same way. The gospel came in, Christ comes in, and where he's preached, idols, false gods are confronted. Every society has its gods. Every society has its idols. And people who preach the gospel come in and say, those gods aren't real gods. They can't do what God does. They're just contrivances made with human hands and human imaginations. Calvin has famously said that that the human heart is a virtual idol factory. So when you put a lot of human hearts together in society, you're going to have a lot of idols that hold a powerful sway over a people. You see that different cultures, different societies, different even different parts of the U.S., maybe have different gods that they bow down to. In some parts, it might be the god of power. In others, it might be the idol of money and success. Some places, it might be pleasure. In Texas and Alabama, it's football. In other places, it's sports, recreation, nature, the outdoors. California, it's probably fitness and beauty. 
here in the heartland, maybe it's family. Maybe it's kids. All those things can be, can be good things. Money is a good thing. Power can be a good thing when used rightly. Pleasure is a good thing. Kids are a good thing usually. Uh, they're all good things. But when they take preeminence, they become an idol. They offer a, a, a false hope, a false security, a false sense of satisfaction that can't last, that can't truly satisfy. And Christ, through the gospel, in grace, comes in and tears down those idols. But the unbelieving world loves its idols. They love the hope and the security and the comfort and the pleasure that they bring. But know this about the gospel. Uh, Christ will not be worshipped alongside power or alongside Artemis or alongside pleasure. He says those things have to be torn down. There's no syncretism in Christianity. It's not God, Christ, plus your own idol. The gospel says, tear them all down. The gospel is prepared to take, well, no prisoners. It's an all or nothing affair with Christ. The gospel challenges society's idols and, frankly, mocks our sources of pride. Ephesus was so proud of the Artemisian, of the temple to Artemis. And Paul says, you made it with human hands. Your God's nothing. Don't boast in Artemis. What can she do for you? Don't boast in your power. What are you going to do with that when you're dead? Don't boast in your money. What good is that for you? The gospel mocks our sources of pride, confronts our idols, and overturns the status quo in a given culture. How did it do it here in Ephesus? It did it publicly and privately. I think you see discipleship happening. Those who burned their magic scrolls, it doesn't look like they did that all at once. Not when they were first converted. They embraced the gospel. Someone walked alongside them and says, here's how you live out the Christian life. And oh, by the way, practicing magic and the occult doesn't jive with following Christ. It's kind of a, a private tutoring in the gospel But it was also very public at times. Paul rented a large lecture hall and there reasoned daily, probably much like he did in Athens. Here's the God you worship. Let me tell you about the real God. Now, I don't think he had a picket sign walking out in front of, you know, Demetrius's little tent there saying, you know, Demetrius is dumb. Artemis is stupid. Uh, But it was public. There's a public proclamation of the gospel and a public confrontation with false idols. As the gospel is preached, as the gospel is preached and embraced, it changed the fabric of the culture, of the society, slowly and surely. But you also see in this text what happens. There's conflict. Uh, Light and dark don't often peacefully coexist. 
Similar things to what happened in Acts 19 have happened throughout the history of the church in different cities, in different cultures, in different times, over different issues, but it's always confrontation between light and dark because they don't peacefully coexist. In some places, the biblical message of sexual morality has been imposed by brothel owners. In some places, the church's care for the poor has been opposed by those who prey on the poor. I remember I had to be five years old, maybe even younger. I remember one night my dad came home. He did visitation in our neighborhood in Rochester, New York. And he would witness and evangelize. And one day he came home visibly shaken He had built a relationship with a guy in the neighborhood, and they would get together and talk shop and hang out in the garage and talk all kinds of, well, guy things. One day my dad got the courage up to to bring up Christ and to share the gospel with him. The guy picked up a two-by-four and chased my dad out, swinging the two-by-four at him. Light and dark don't often coexist peacefully. You say, oh, well... We've done all right here in the West for a while. We seem, the church has seemed to peacefully coexist in our culture. Yeah. There's two explanations for that. I think the first, God has provided peace, provided stability for a while. He's blessed. The second is maybe more uncomfortable. Could it be that we've peacefully coexisted because we've dimmed our light so that we don't draw attention, so that we don't draw the scorn of our world? When the light shines bright, it will be opposed. That's a message I think we need to own. We need to own that. It seems in the past decade, There's been a renewed emphasis in the church, very good renewed emphasis, on doing good in our culture, on letting our light shine through our good works in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our cities, of serving our communities. That is fantastic. I love that. But sometimes it can be accompanied with a naivete that if we just do good, People will like us. That hasn't proven to be true. Proven to be true. Sometimes people will hate you all the more when you do good. I'm not saying don't do good. Do it. Let your light shine. Preach the gospel. Share Christ. And don't be surprised by opposition. Don't be surprised. When you're hated. Because the gospel, well, it confronts. It confronts sources of pride. It confronts sin. It confronts false idols. It overturns the status quo. It disrupts the peace. The gospel turns things upside down. And that's uncomfortable. So at times it will be opposed. I know, this is a weird sermon, right? For the first Sunday of Advent. A weird text. 
but I think it connects. The first Sunday of Advent is about hope. Uh, The gospel of Christ brings hope. But to clear the way for the true hope of Jesus Christ, it tears down all the false hopes that idols promise. And it's It declares that it is only in Jesus Christ that true hope can be found. Hope of forgiveness. Hope of right relationship with God. Hope of eternal life in His kingdom. Hope of love and joy and shalom. Hope of a renewed heaven and earth. Hope of eternity with Christ. I pray that this Advent season... We'd be attuned to all the false hopes and the false gods in our own life and in our culture and that we'd turn from them and that the true hope of Jesus Christ would find a deep root in our hearts. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the true hope that we can find in the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that through this season we would come to cling to to Him as our true hope more and more, more firmly, more deeply. Father, root out those idols that are still in our lives, tempting tempting us to give our affection, our allegiance, our service to them. Father, we pray that You would free us from that and help us to love and celebrate Jesus, Your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Will you please stand?